Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics. When will we give up the charade and finally commit to a public inquiry? What's important is that we work together, Mr. Speaker. David Johnston is out as special rapporteur, and the government says an inquiry is still on the table. MPs debate the foreign interference file and what comes next. Ukraine is pushing back against Russia. And after the Prime Minister's visit, Canada is pledging more help. Retired General Tom Lawson weighs in. And the Senate wants changes to the planned Canada disability benefit. And several senators want that bill passed before the summer break. Senator Kim Pate tells us why. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson in for Michael Serapio tonight. We start with a new vacancy on the Supreme Court of Canada. Russell Brown has retired as a justice effective immediately. Brown had been on leave for more than four months, with the Canadian Judicial Council probing his alleged conduct at an American resort. The council says Brown's resignation from the bench means an end to that review. Brown has denied the allegations against him. Now to foreign interference and the fallout from David Johnston's resignation as special rapporteur. The government says a public inquiry remains on the table and that opposition parties need to step up with ideas. Conservatives are pledging to work with the Bloc Québécois and NDP, but they want an inquiry called now. It's all adding up to more back and forth in the House of Commons. It's been eight months of denials, foot-dragging and cover-ups for these Liberals when it comes to foreign interference in our election. Here's the numbers. Countless promises of protecting our democracy, hundreds of thousands to the Trudeau Foundation, one special rapporteur, and zero answers and zero results. The Prime Minister now gets to go back to the drawing board where he can keep delaying this investigation, continue his cover-up and find someone else to do his bidding. The opposition has agreed to their new request. When will he give up the charade and finally commit to a public inquiry? The Honourable Minister for Intergovernmental Affairs. Mr. Speaker, uh, we think that a discussion about issues as important as protecting Canadian democratic institutions from unacceptable foreign interference would benefit from all of us lowering the partisan temperature. That's That's why, Mr. Speaker, we believe that the decision of Mr. Johnston to leave the special rapporteur's role gives all of us an opportunity to discuss what are the next steps in a public process. The opposition says they want a public inquiry. What would be the terms of reference of that inquiry? How would they protect necessary national security information in the interest of Canada? What would be the timelines? Those are the conversations we're anxious to have. All right, let's talk more about foreign interference and what comes next with three members of parliament. Liberal MP Taleb Noor-Mohammed sits on the Public Safety Committee. Michael Barrett is the Conservative ethics critic. And in Burnaby, B.C., Peter Julian is the NDP House leader. Good to see all three of you. Nice to see you. Good to be with you. Uh, Mr. No Mohammed, I want to start with you. Mr. Johnston has, of course, resigned. Minister Dominic LeBlanc says an inquiry is on the table, that he's getting advice, that he wants input from opposition parties who are all demanding an inquiry. So what is stopping the government from saying yes to a formal inquiry? I think, first of all, it's important. I mean, I'd like to start by thanking uh, Mr. Johnston for the work that he did, for the service he did to this country. And it is a shame that 
you know, things played out as they did and people chose to play politics with this. Look, we are where we are and I think the path forward is what's important. What's important is to ensure that there is a process, uh, given where we are, that everyone uh, can agree to and that that public process, whatever that looks like, is something that gets underway in due course. It's also important to note that at no point had anybody said that they were opposed to moving forward with the inquiry. The idea was to let Mr. Johnston finish his work and then we would see what the recommendations were. But I think it's an important step forward. If everyone is willing to work together to agree on what the future uh, process, whatever that looks like, might look like in terms of a public process, I think that's a good thing for the country. It's a good thing for ensuring that there is no daylight there should really be no daylight between any parties on how uh, we chart the course forward because that's really the most important thing in ensuring that Canadians feel confidence uh, in our systems but also in knowing that we're going to keep protecting our democracy. Okay, Mr. Barrett, let's talk about these talks. Have you started conversations with the NDP and the Bloc Québécois or have you even talked to the government on some of these specifics? Where are you in terms of putting forward some detailed demands on what you would like to see? Well, for several months, um, the majority of members in the House of Commons have been calling for there to be a public inquiry. The House voted three times by majority for there to be a public inquiry. So uh, we're now at a point where uh, the government has seen that um, the individual that they appointed who was inappropriate for the job based on the conflicts of interest and the ties to the Prime Minister um, is no longer in that position. And, and frankly, that was also the, the House called for Mr. Johnston to no longer be in that role. So we've been calling for this public inquiry to take place. We've said that we want the opposition parties, all of the recognized parties in the House of Commons, um, to be able to uh, have their input, have their say on, on who is going to lead this public transparent process because we've seen what happens um, when the will of the majority of the elected officials in the House of Commons is ignored by the government, which, which the Liberals have been doing. Um, it, it undermines Canadians' confidence. We have a majority of Canadians who are calling for a public process. So uh, these conversations are, um, are going to happen now uh, between the opposition parties on uh, who appropriate candidates would be uh, to lead this process, and we'll present those to the government and hope that um, several months uh, into this, where since, since we've all been calling, opposition parties have been calling for a public inquiry, uh, the government's now finally prepared to, to collaborate and, and, and come to the table, um, that we're able to get this underway very quickly because it's important that we have a public inquiry and we have that report before Canadians head to the polls next. Uh, this, is, this is critical so that Canadians can have confidence in our democratic institution and um, and to this point uh, the process that the that the government has used uh, has not contributed to um, to the healthy discourse or healthy confidence in our democracy okay mr. Julian I want to ask you about these conversations as as the house leader who are some of the names that the NDP is going to be putting forward as a potential successor to mr. Johnston uh, in this process and what are the concrete elements you would want to see in a potential inquiry have those uh, have those demands changed in light of Mr. Johnston's departure? Well, uh, I, I remind everybody that it was the NDP, uh, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP that brought forward uh, bo both the uh, the most important motions that were voted on by all members of the opposition and all independent MPs. In fact, all MPs with the exception of the Liberals. Uh, the last one last week uh, did ask uh, Mr. Johnson to step aside, and I, I believe he's done the honourable thing by following uh, the will of Parliament. We called for that public inquiry, and uh, we also provided a work plan uh, which 
the House of Commons can do to committees, to the Procedure and House Affairs Committee, both to find an individual or individuals and to, to look at the mandate. As far as the NDP is concerned, there are a number of noted people that could fulfill that role wonderfully. And, and those are discussions that we'll have with the other parties. But as far as the mandate is concerned, from the very beginning, the NDP has said, we need to be looking at all facets of foreign interference. There has been, of course, the Chinese interference that uh, has uh, has come to light, uh, those allegations. Uh, there's Russian interference. It played a key role in the 2016 American election and the Brexit referendum. This is something that we cannot neglect. And, and the diaspora groups, uh, Canadians of Indian and Iran, Iranian origin have flagged concerns about uh, possible interference from those governments. So we need to be taking uh, a large look at foreign interference. We need to be doing it quickly. Uh, we've had public inquiries that have lasted nine months. In this case, uh, what I think we need to do with that individual or those individuals uh, that are appointed to head up the public inquiry, we need to be looking at a, a short but thorough uh, job that is done so that all of those uh, recommendations can be implemented prior to the next election. I, I think we all believe that we, we need to have a federal election that is free from any taint of foreign interference. The best way to do that is to move forward quickly with the public inquiry, do it thoroughly, and then implement the recommendations that come out of that. Okay, uh, Mr. Noor Mohammed, I want to go back to you because you've now heard different views from the Conservatives and, and the NDP, some different ideas. Is the government putting the onus uh, on opposition parties to come back with some ideas on moving forward, even though ultimately it is the government that's going to decide whether or not to strike a public inquiry? It's not the role of the opposition. What's going to happen if the government doesn't like what it's hearing about what's being proposed, if there is no consensus? Well, I think it's important to remember that since day one, we've been saying that this should be a nonpartisan uh, we should be taking a nonpartisan approach to this. We should not be partisan in our outlooks. And so if everyone is coming to this um, with the same objective, and that is to ensure that we are safeguarding our democracy, to ensure that we are working hard to send a clear signal that no one, uh, no foreign power will be allowed to uh, damage, interfere with our democracy. I think we need to be very clear that that is something that we need to all be focused on. Then it should be quite, quite easy for everyone to come to the table with an open mind and come up with a process recommendations that uh, that we can agree on. And I think this is important, right? I mean, there has been a tremendous amount of pressure being placed on all quarters from all sides to get this right. And so if uh, if everyone is coming to this with the best of intentions, I'm confident that in the spirit of, uh, of democracy and spirit of concern for this country, we should be able to reach a consensus. Okay, Mr. Baer, you talked about the timeline. Is it realistic to have a public inquiry in a tight time frame? Uh, given the concerns about top-secret material, given the concerns we've heard from some diaspora groups about uh, the hesitation to give public testimony and whether some extra measures uh, need to be in place. How are you going to balance that? Look, there's a, a number of precedents where um, secret or, or top-secret information has been, uh, has been reviewed for, for public inquiries, um, and that we're able to do that uh, as a country without revealing sources and methods. Um, there, we can also, of course, balance the needs for the protection of, um, of individuals who are under threat uh, from uh, dictatorships like the, like the one in, in Beijing. Um, we, need to, we need to do that. The government also has a responsibility to, to 
to use other tools um, that they've so far been uh, hesitant or, or refused to implement, like having a foreign agent registry. We've heard from members of the uh, of, of different diaspora groups, particularly the, the Chinese diaspora group, that, um, that they want a foreign agent registry. We need to have those tools as a country. Our law enforcement agencies need them. But to your question on, on if this can happen quickly, absolutely it can. We have, uh, we have judges in this, federal judges in this country who, who review designated material. There's a, there's a number of different uh, scenarios uh, where, where we can move through this in an expeditious fashion while balancing, of course, the need for, um, for security, but also the need for restoring and maintaining Canadians' confidence in our democratic process. This okay, is, I'm going to have to this, just break in right important. now. We are, we are almost out of time. I do want Mr. Julian to be able to get the last word in on this in the, in the moment we have left. What about these concerns about uh, an expedited process and, and how are you going to address that? Uh, well, th these are concerns that were raised with Mr. Johnson's approach, and he didn't have an answer to uh, to it. Uh, the, the issue of the diaspora communities is something that can be treated in a public inquiry as confidential, sensitive, secret information, which public inquiries uh, have done in the past, and they've treated that information separately. Uh, it certainly made sure that that information is is something that helps to to drive their their conclusions and recommendations. But we have the ability to do this. Uh, if the government is now uh, open to the NDP proposals that we've, we've brought to Parliament now twice, uh, then that is a good thing. And I, I believe, sincerely, we can find a consensus. We can find the one individual or the, the three individuals uh, that would be most appropriate. We can agree on a mandate and we can move forward. Okay, we'll have to leave it there for tonight. Thanks to all three of you. Thank you. Thank you. Now to the latest in Ukraine, where officials say several villages have been freed from Russian control as a counteroffensive gets underway. This push coming with Canada's Prime Minister announcing another $500 million in military support while on the ground in Kyiv this past weekend. Justin Trudeau also pledging humanitarian aid to help deal with the massive Nova Kakovka dam collapse. And let's talk more about Ukraine now with retired General Tom Lawson, who served as Canada's Chief of Defence Staff from 2012 to 2015. General Lawson, good to have you back on Primetime Politics. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me here. So we had the Prime Minister making this stealth visit to Kyiv over the weekend, promising uh, more financial support, more missiles, more fighter pilot training, and the extension of Operation Unifier to 2026. I want to get your thoughts on what you made of Justin Trudeau in Ukraine this past weekend. Well, I think the most important thing about the Prime Minister uh, expressing uh, Canadian support, his support and Canadian support for uh, Ukraine is the fact that he did it in person for the second time in uh, in a year as well. Uh, I think what he's doing is he's showing uh, first and foremost uh, that there is no weakening of the resolve from Canada and and hopefully on behalf of Western allies as well uh, for the for supporting Ukraine uh, in this war. And as I say, the fact that he did that in person. Uh, and came with promises of increased Canadian support is very important and uh, highly appreciated by uh, Ukraine. Now, there's certainly been a lot of recent talk about Canada's military capacity in terms of personnel, in terms of equipment. You've talked to us before, actually, uh, about the Canadian military needing to be very careful in prioritizing its resources. So we know we've had now another batch of, of announcements on what Canada is going to be contributing. 
Are we at risk of approaching the limit of what the Canadian Armed Forces can send Ukraine? Well, I think uh, the Prime Minister was very careful to make it clear that most of what is being brought to Ukraine by Canada now is financial aid, you know, two and a half billion dollars towards reconstruction, 500 million more in terms of military gear, some fighter pilot training, uh, which cer certainly Canada would be able to supply. But in terms, to your point, in terms of increased feet on the ground uh, to uh, to support Ukrainian uh, training, um, not a lot uh, of specifics there. So I don't think he's putting at risk the missions that are underway that are now supported by Canadian troops uh, in Latvia and various other parts around the world. Largely, this is showing that Canada is coming to the table with other Western allies and providing them uh, support uh, from a military equipment point of view and from a financial point of view. Okay, let's talk about what's actually happening on the ground in Ukraine uh, right now as we speak. When President Volodymyr Zelensky was with the Prime Minister on Saturday, uh, he said counter-offensive defensive actions were taking place, not offering a lot of specifics, but we are getting some reports and some images that are suggesting some small gains in southeastern Ukraine in terms of uh, clearing Russian control of some villages. So uh, I want to get your initial reaction to the start of this pushback on what is a thousand kilometer front line. Right. So there are a few things that we can know about uh, offensives, counteroffensives, and in, in particular, this counteroffensive. One is um, that it's true, a proven military strategy that when you're on the offensive, you should conceal your intentions. So this uh, remarkable openness that we've seen from Ukrainian military and political leaders over the last year, as they've been largely on the defensive or pushing back um, Russian offensives uh, is now starting to shut down because the shoe's on the other foot and uh, uh, offensives are a very difficult thing to carry out. It's tougher to be on the offensive uh, than the defensive. So largely we're going to see Ukraine wanting to be very, very deceptive regarding if and when the offensive is underway and which towns will be hit. So uh, that doesn't relieve Western uh, media of the need to report what they can find. So we saw that 16 American armored vehicles were taken out, probably uh, accurately so by the Russians uh, in one of the part portions of the counteroffensive. But I think it'll be weeks, if not months, before we really have an idea of what's going on with the offensive. One thing we do know about it is it's, it's critical for Ukraine to show some amount of um, progress and success in their offensive in order to bolster the confidence of Western allies and bolster uh, their patience and support, uh, which likely won't be a problem in Canada, where 3% of Canadians uh, claim a, a Ukrainian heritage as their background, uh, but other uh, NATO allies may be a little weaker in that, and they'll be looking for success on the battlefield. So this is a critical, perhaps a turning point for Ukrainian forces. And I did want to ask you what, what the challenges are uh, for Ukraine in pushing back against Russia's occupation. Obviously, uh, there is the difference just in the size between Russia and Ukraine. But, you know, we are uh, uh, dealing with that dam collapse, the Kakovka Dam Canada promising humanitarian aid for this, a lot of disruption, flooding, evacuations, 
uh, right in the middle of this war. So uh, can you talk a bit about the Ukrainian military and what they're going to be facing now over these next weeks and months as right. this counteroffensive is getting underway? Right. First of the dam, uh, there's a few things we can know and we do know about the dam at Nova Kokovka. Uh, you know, it's a USSR era dam, mid 50s, um, 100 foot high uh, waterhead uh, that stretches back 250 kilometers. So a lot of water held by this very important uh, power dam. And it's been in Russia hands, Russian hands for uh, for a year and a half. Uh, what we don't know absolutely clearly, and all politicians are being a little careful, is uh, what has caused its demise. You know, it, it, there is some likelihood the Russians blew it with their own explosives uh, to create a humanitarian uh, situation, regardless of uh, the disaster downstream. Russians have shown they don't care too much about that. And to create a diversion that Ukrainian forces and people would have to deal with. So that's a possibility. There's another possibility, and that is that since it's been in Russian hands, uh, it hasn't been up to the same levels of maintenance uh, that were required, and maybe it gave way under some of the damages caused over the last year and a half of conflict. Both of those absolutely fall within the responsibility of Russians. A third possibility, of course, is that this is a false flag operation by Ukrainians, However, that's very hard to uh, to support. Uh, hard to believe that Ukrainian authorities would ever want to uh, create such damage on their own uh, property. So it's it's likely one of the first two. Uh, our own prime minister and other Western politicians, certain certainly the uh, head of the European Union, have said this is a Russian responsibility. Uh, but it, it does create a blunting to the attack, uh, a diversion for the Ukrainian forces uh, to be aware of and to deal with. To your point of the problems now uh, being uh, dealt with by the Ukrainian forces, it's just plain easier to be on the defensive. And the Russians have had months and months to set up anti-tank barriers and to get behind them to dig trenches and make it very difficult for them to be dug out of these defensive positions. Uh, regardless of whatever strategy, however clever it is, uh, the Ukrainians are setting up it will be a very a difficult thing. Now, what they have going for them is they now, for the first time, have combined arm operations training. And what this means uh, is that Ukrainians are bringing all types of warfare together, including uh, support from the air together with armor, uh, artillery, and uh, boots on the ground uh, to, to bring to bear against the Russians. The Russians haven't seen this kind of warfare before, and they don't practice it themselves. So Ukraine has a lot going for them, uh, but a huge challenge ahead and one that has to work out in their favor. Okay, we'll certainly keep watching. Retired General Tom Lawson, thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. The bill to create a Canada disability benefit has returned to the House, but with Senate amendments. And a group of senators want the government to make sure Bill C-22 gets passed before MPs leave for the summer. Kim Pate is one of those senators, a member of the Independent Senators Group. Senator, good to see you. Thank you. Good to see you, too. So I want to talk about the bill. The Senate did pass Bill C-22 more than three weeks ago with a number of amendments. You and your colleagues, uh, several of you say it's now urgent to get this bill through to royal assent and in place as soon as possible. Why is that? 
Well, because people with disabilities are waiting for this benefit, and it's the bill is really just a framework to get the benefit developed and to then work with people with disabilities to develop it. So the government introduced these, this idea more than two years ago. Uh, we took about three months to study it, to improve it, and send it back. And the longer it sits in the House, the longer it takes for us to actually move to the next stage. And, and so we think the Senate amendments are vital to it. Um, and I think most people with disabilities would, would agree. And I'll ask you about those amendments in just a moment. But first, to, to put it into perspective, uh, what is the gap right now for low-income Canadians who face disabilities in, ter in terms of the benefit process? How many people uh, are we talking about when we think of who could benefit from this once it's passed? Well, we're talking about thousands of people, absolutely, and probably uh, much closer to a million people. Uh, because w right now, uh, people who have disabilities, if they, they either qualify for benefits from insurance companies if they're on leave because of a, uh, something uh, that happened while they were working, or they're on things like here in Ontario, Ontario Disability Benefit, so a social assistance type of benefit, none of them are adequate to to meet people's basic needs. And so uh, we're talking about resources that would be made available that would top up people's income and bring them out of, lift them out of poverty. Because the majority of uh, people on disability uh, are living in poverty. And I think that's atrocious. And so really, that's what the, the government was recognizing. I think it's laudable that the government introduced the bill. Uh, now, with the Senate amendments, we have the option of actually seeing it do exactly what they propose. So let's talk about that then. You are asking the government to look at a handful of key changes. I know there's uh, one section about clawbacks. There's talk about uh, the time frame of getting this into place, who's eligible, how that's calculated. Uh, can you take us through what those key changes are? Sure. So um, one of the main changes is to make sure that there's adequate income. And so talking about using the um, poverty line and, and actually measuring uh, and bringing people up to an adequate uh, source. There's also a provision to uh, basically say that there shouldn't be clawbacks. How do we know there will be clawbacks if that isn't in there? Because we saw what happened with the canned emergency benefit. And when it was put in place, insurance companies and provinces and territories, not, not all, but um, many, clawed back the resources. So people were paid the money, uh, the CERB, and then had that money taken off their checks. And so many people, in fact, were you know, were disqualified completely from their disability benefits as well. So it was a double whammy. And so we don't want to see that repeat. This is not supposed to be a windfall for provinces or insurance companies. It's supposed to be lifting people out of poverty. And so inadvertently, without that kind of amendment, uh, we could end up with people being in the same situation. There's also an appeal process been introduced, um, which is important if people are deemed not to qualify, then to at least have a process whereby they can um, appeal that and and try and have uh, brought in. And then the final one is to have uh, everything start within 12 months of royal assent. Now, I know the Minister for Disability Inclusion, Carla Qualtrough, has said that uh, the government is reviewing the amendments. This was uh, two weeks ago. Uh, she said that uh, the government is committed uh, to the timeline, committed to getting royal assent uh, by the end of June. Do you have any more specifics on whether the government is going to accept these amendments in this current form when the bill comes back? We don't know. We do know that um, at the time that we were presenting the amendments, concerns were raised by the government representative as well as the sponsor about the constitutionality of, for instance, the clawback provision. 
our response is we also have a constitutional responsibility. So that's, that has to do with the division of powers and the power to regulate in terms of insurance companies. Um, as one of our colleagues pointed out, um, these kinds of measures have been put in place before and have, have not been ruled unconstitutional. And really, um, in this case, we also have a responsibility to people with with disabilities. And the Senate especially has that responsibility as part of our role is to represent regional interests, but also the interests of those who are otherwise um, uh, considered minority interests, or uh, as many young people say to me, intentionally ignored folks. And that would be people with disabilities. And the government has a choice to make. Will they fall on the side of ensuring that people with disabilities have the benefits, or will they fall on the side of, of um, shoring up insurance companies. And really, it's that basic, because if, in fact, they don't pass that amendment, what it means is that disability groups, individuals, will have to go to court to argue this, probably, if, if and when insurance companies claw back or provinces do. And we know how long that takes. One of the witnesses who testified before the Senate committee on this bill talked about a, a challenge that he started, he and a group of others started, 11 years ago, and it took that long to work through the court processes, I think there's an obligation on the part of the government to ensure that the, the disability benefit gets to the people who it's intended for and doesn't line the pockets of insurance companies or provinces. Okay, we'll see how that debate unfolds. The government House leader does say Bill C-22 is on this week's agenda for debate. Senator Kim Pate, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And finally, a former Conservative leader and Cabinet Minister is saying goodbye to Parliament. And today, Erin O'Toole offered a farewell speech and a few words of caution. We must strive to inspire and be careful not to incite. And we must debate with insightful reason, not just tweet out of frustration. Because if we don't, Mr. Speaker, decades in the future, Canadians will point to this parliament as the time when our national decline began. And that is Primetime Politics for Monday. I'm Andrew Thompson. Thanks for watching.